Welcome to the Canon Care Podcast, brought to you by M3. I'm Sarah Kukula, Director of Senior Living and Social Services at M3. And I'm Marlia Coiler-Grayhek, Risk Manager at M3. Each episode of the Candid Care Podcast promises to challenge your current thinking about the long-term care industry and introduce concepts to improve your organization and advance the field. From executive risks to key strategies, we'll approach each topic from multiple angles and invite leaders with unique perspectives to join in the conversation. Please be advised this podcast and the recommendations throughout are not intended as legal advice and should not be used as or relied upon as legal advice. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. We're going to get started today. So every single year, the M3 Senior Living and Social Services team pulls together our annual market report, where we talk through certainly risk transfer considerations, what's happening in the insurance marketplace. But this year, what we made an intentional choice to do was curate some emerging and evolving risks specific for providers. So this is what we're going to do today. We're going to do rapid fire of the emerging evolving risks specific to healthcare organizations. What do you think about that? Let's do it. I'm excited. All right. Rapid fire. Round one. Round one. I feel like we need a like a wrestling thing or something, but oh, no. we can yeah. that. what is going on? I think cyber and cybersecurity is on a lot of people's minds right now. Can you give us a quick hit overview of the cyber market and what's going on from an operations standpoint? Yeah, people are curious to know what's happening, particularly after the last couple of years where we've had what we call a hard market meaning significant price increases for the last couple of years driven by frequency and severity of claims. But the upside is here we are in 2023 and we're definitely seeing rates normalizing or a softening of the market. And I would say this is kind of a few different factors playing into this. We're seeing a reduction in the frequency and severity of claims from 2022 versus what was anticipated, which is great. But we're also seeing more controls being put into place. So the consequence of that claim activity was insurance carriers and markets required their insurers to put certain controls, such as multi-factor authentication, which could have certainly led to the reduction in claims activity. So with this improvement in risk management across the board for providers, again, we're seeing rates normalizing and that softening of the market. The other thing that I think is important to note here is oftentimes I tell my clients it's not a matter of if, but when a cyber breach will occur. So it's important to continue to reassess your network security controls or your security posture and develop a strategy that ensures you're continually addressing it on an annual basis at minimum. So the insurance carrier markets will continue to have prescriptive risk control measures for this year and likely the year ahead. We're definitely seeing maybe like an evolution of appetites. Insurance carriers are determining, do they want to commit to this space? Do they not? Do they want to change? There is limited capacity for healthcare, but plenty of capacity. So that's good. Lots of market options. And the last thing I would say here on the horizon and as we look to the future is the unknowns, right? That would be the evolution of cybercrime. So the crimes we know today may not be the same as the crimes of the future. So that evolution in itself is something we're all closely monitoring and working with certainly our 
friends in the business and our director of cyber liability and his team to make sure we keep our fingers on the pulse in that regard. Sarah, when somebody was talking about a board member joining their board of directors who had a cybersecurity background and they were recently retired, which is great that you have that knowledge on your board. But I think what you spoke to about the evolution of cybercrime, what one knows about cybercrime now is not going to be the same three months from now. So you really need to constantly be assessing your strategy around that, like you said. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Should we go round two, rapid fire? Round two. <laughs> round two. I think it, it only makes sense to maybe talk about liability, kind of what we're seeing from that perspective. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. What we're seeing a lot of right now and probably started, what, two years ago, getting out of the pandemic, and I would say particularly a couple months ago, definitely now increasing, is what we call these pre-litigation indicators. So increased complaint surveys, increased record requests from families and attorneys after sentinel events or unpleasant experiences. And I think a lot of that is really pushed by this concept of social inflation. And really now, I think there's more sentiment of healthcare being more of a corporate entity company business versus the nurses and care providers taking care of people. There's that general idea of it having more of that business feel to it, which is really driving the social inflation piece, which increases uh, significant jury verdicts and awards, which in turn drives higher claim payouts, higher loss ratios, and higher premiums as well. So that social inflation piece is just really huge. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I think it's one of the things that we've been talking about for the last two years as we've been consulting with those whom we work with, and we continue to hear social inflation from our insurance carrier partners as well as one of their top concerns with regards to claim payouts today, but moreover from a predictive perspective as well. I totally agree with you. I think it also makes sense to talk a little bit about third-party litigation and funding. I think what's interesting in this capacity is also the unknowns and what we might be anticipating. So this is a big industry as it stands today which will likely continue to grow. And there's not a lot of oversight from a federal or regulatory perspective, if you will, at this point in time, it varies state by state. So in Wisconsin, as an example, you're required by law to disclose if you are, in fact, being funded through third-party litigation financing. So we haven't seen too much activity up until this point, but we know that it is likely going to pick up in its pace of play, if you will, for our healthcare clients that we see. And of course, it's something we're also continuing to monitor. Yeah, I think for those who aren't aware, because I think, it, like you said, it does fly under the radar. Yeah. Uh, so for those who aren't aware of what third-party litigation funding is, because sometimes we talk about it and people aren't even aware that's a thing. And it mm -hmm. seems like it shouldn't be a thing, but it's really this form of financing for legal expenses that investors, so it's an investment opportunity for them. They provide funds to attorneys and plaintiffs in exchange for a financial stake in that settlement or winnings of a lawsuit or arbitration. So mm -hmm. it's just fascinating. You wouldn't think that would be legal or ethical, but it's rather unregulated right now. And like you said, it's definitely growing. There was a litigation advisory firm that just came out with a report that in 2022, there was a 16% increase in litigation funding, which was the largest annual increase in the past three years. But overall, litigation funding is a small percentage currently of litigation. But as you said, it's definitely going to be increasing. Yeah, more to come on this 
narrative. All right, next round. Right, round three. How about this, this concept of corporate responsibility, Sarah, and the buzzword as of late, ESG? Well, I was going to say we love a good acronym. So ESG, yes, the Environmental Social Governance. What does that mean? So I think maybe we'll start there. ESG, we're talking a lot about. We're hearing a lot about it in the news. I would certainly say I've picked up a lot more on that in conversations. But what does that mean for our senior living and social services clientele or those serving the long-term care community? ESG is a framework that's used to assess your organization's business practices and performance on various sustainability and ethical issues. It captures what you're doing today, but it also talks through how are you measuring those items and what is considered, quote unquote, success, if you will. E is environmental. S is social and G is governance. So that is something that I think we're continuing to work on some tools and resources to support our clients as they're working towards this initiative, as they look, you know, if you will, down the road and want to formalize something in this capacity in the next 12 months or perhaps the following year, we're pulling together some recommendations so that they can do it well and do it the right way. And I think if there's not a requirement to do it yet, which there's not, if you're not a publicly traded company, it's kind of, why do we need to do it? It's not a requirement, but I think there is an argument that it may be a good business decision from a brand perspective, from a workforce perspective. We've even heard carriers using it to their advantage for defensibility and liability claims from a financial perspective from investors and mergers and acquisitions. It's definitely coming into play there. So while not required, it is something worth giving some attention to. And even when you think about the evolving workforce as well, particularly Gen Z, but I don't want to limit it to just that, applicants are asking about this before hire too. So I think being prepared to address it and answer those questions, you may not get a lot of them today, but it's very likely that you will be asked, not only maybe by groups that you choose to do business with, but certainly your applicant pool is what is your stance with regards to the environment? Or under social, as an example, that would include diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. What is the work that you've done there? Or what is what are some certain things that you've committed to as an organization? By all means, I just think it's important to engage in the conversation if it makes sense for your organization. And if it does, what does that look like for you? And speaking of workforce, I think that brings us to round four here, because we can't talk about emerging and evolving risks without talking about workforce, right? Nope. <laughs> no, well, we can't. You recently came across some very fascinating information on, on unionization. I thought that would just be great for our listeners to, to hear about. Yeah, I think it's important to maybe come at this point. I'm certainly not an employment attorney. One of the things that I've heard from my friends in the business and certainly nationally is that unionization is up. (laughs) The trend is up that more people are asking about it. And particularly, again, I'll point to that younger generation. They're interested in what this is, what this looks like, and how they could put it into place within their respective organizations. From a healthcare perspective, I think it's important to be aware if you don't currently have a union. Just maybe what are some considerations in the event you are starting to hear employees talk about unionizing? What does that look like? How do you address it? And so forth. So I think it's something to continue to monitor, keep your finger on the pulse on. And although not a healthcare example, we've seen this kind of play out with Starbucks as an example. So 
Again, it's something that we see as an emerging risk, still maybe a little bit too early to see what this looks like for our healthcare clients. Along those lines, too, we're talking about the younger workforce and the Gen Z. Mm-hmm. There's kind of these competing ideologies between the Gen Z group. It's one of them is this death to the career where sure. the younger workers don't necessarily want a career anymore. And uh, we probably think just think it's all because they want to be they all want to be influencers. But it's really that they want a job that supplements their life and their values versus living to work. It's really that work to live concept. And I would say that healthcare and social services has the right environment to to really hone that in as far as being great with that moral and ethical and willingness to help and making a change side of that younger workforce. But I think there's also a challenge with the work-life balance side of things. And we've really been seeing some creative and I would say pushing the envelope ideas from some of our providers, such as the four-day work week which is, has been a huge success for some of our clients. Yeah, I agree. And I think this is something we're going to continue to see more of is not everybody entering the workforce is going to be picking up the significant hours that maybe employees did in yesteryear. And the other thing that I think is important from a shift perspective is what are our hiring practices and how have those changed? Some of the things that I've heard that have resonated with me as I've done some work out in the field and consulted with some experts in this regard is really taking a look at what are some different things you can change. As an example, look to hire for potential instead of pedigree. Historically speaking, particularly for maybe some different positions within our facilities, being mindful of some talent that has potential and or building up your bench team. Of course, there's some limitations. I get it from a licensure perspective, but just think about what that might look like from a creativity perspective within your organization. The other thing I would say here, too, is consider career mapping, helping your employees look to the future. This almost sounds, I feel like, counterintuitive, Marlia, based on what you just said, because it's death of the career. But it's kind of that competing ideology because they don't grow, but they also don't want necessarily a career. But you you have to incorporate both. Yes. So going back to that, it's almost like, less employer dictated, more employee driven. You're going to have to let your employee drive the wheel. That doesn't mean you let them drive it solo, but you're going to have to provide tools and resources that it may be completely different than what you've done even in the last few years. One of the good examples I hear that resonates with me is when we start talking a little bit more about an apprenticeship model in the workplace, we're not necessarily talking in that language often, but how are we sharing intellectual information, knowledge, insights, wisdom, et cetera. What does that model and framework look like, again, within your organization? I just don't want to believe that it's the death of the career. But try things out. I think that's, if we were to give you any hope, that's one thing that I've heard is just try and be okay if it fails, be okay if it doesn't work out, and pivot as needed. And of course, we're talking about getting labor into the workforce, but I know one of the things, Marlia, that you have been spending a significant amount of time on is technology and how we can leverage technology as part of our workforce challenge as a possible solution. Yeah. And right now there's no silver bullet in terms of robots that can do what our staff do, but there is technology and there are tools out there that make their jobs more efficient. So whether are you going to be able to replace a person? Probably not, but you are able to 
make their work more efficient and be able to do more with less, which is what we need to do right now since we don't have the workforce pool. And this is something too, given the advancements in technology, how quickly everything is moving and we could talk about generative AI, but we'll talk about that for another conversation. This is something that we have been heavily researching and building out our own tech hub to make available to our clients and really helping consult with regards to opportunities to adopt or adapt some of this technology to make it work for their organization. So I think it's something we're going to have to continue to monitor. And I'm excited to see what the future holds for technology. Yeah. And last thing on workforce too, a lot of our clients are turning to, to increasing their labor pool, which they should, right? Finding different opportunities to bring in labor that maybe we didn't have before. And a big part of that is international workers. And while it's a wonderful opportunity, I think it's worth saying that we can't just have these people and plot them in our organizations and expect them to be successful. Mm -hmm. You have to have strategy and programming around that to incorporate them appropriately into our, our culture. And that also goes along with the ESG and the DEI components. So we can't just use that as a tool just to bring bodies and there has to be some strategy behind it. Yeah, to set it up for success. No, I completely agree. That's everything. That's what we had on our rapid fire. If it felt a little bit like you're drinking out of a fire hose, good. <laughs> we can dive into this deeper and certainly a lot of subsequent conversations. But I think, Marlia, those are the top risk buckets that we're hearing about and we're seeing and we're, mm-hmm. again, looking ahead to. So I'm excited to work on some solutions and strategies with you. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Candid Care Podcast brought to you by M3. Connect with us at m3ins.com for access to more resources, insight, and to join the conversation. 